beginning with Advent, um, again, it's an opportunity for us to remind us that we do follow a church calendar, and we also follow something called the lectionary that goes along with the church calendar. It provides us with these listings of readings that we have. So there's, there's always a gospel reading, there's an epistle reading, an Old Testament reading, and it also gives us our psalm for the call to worship. And so when we think about Advent and the coming of Christ, um, and we're thinking about uh, with hopeful anticipation to Christ's birth, we don't necessarily think of these passages in um, towards the end of the Gospels, really the Olivet Discourse, which is where we find ourselves today. And so what you'll find is I, I preach from Advent to Pentecost, the Gospel preachings, and that helps us remind reminds us of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, His ascension that we see uh, on uh, <clears throat> Ascension Sunday, followed by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And then I preach on other sections of God's Word during the um, regular church year. And with all that, I just want you to say that, that we, of course, we're spending half our year studying the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the words that he spoke to uh, all of us and spoke to his, his disciples there in the very beginning, but it has relevance for us today. So let us again hear the gospel reading, and let us consider Matthew 24, beginning with verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field and one taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken and the other left. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And here we see the word of the Lord speaking to what many of us grew up with, an understanding that... Um, this is to come in the future. But we need to remember that the Olivet Discourse was spoken by Jesus to the people living at that time, and he gave a number of parameters in that. It's important to recognize that the first portion of this speaks of judgment. When we think of the time of Noah, we think of judgment. We think of the people living at the time, oblivious to the call of God to repent, and therefore, God brought judgment. So we're, we're going to set that up, hold that, talk about Advent for just a moment, and kind of go through the passage just a little bit. The Advent, the, 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 the Advent period of the church calendar has a very specific purpose. This is a time of preparation for the celebration of the coming of the Son of God and the coming of the day of the Lord. It marks the end and the beginning of our church year. Jesus came incarnate as a man, and he continues to come throughout history. 
to bring judgment against his enemies and blessings and deliverance to his people. And we can thank God for that. We can look through history beyond the gospel, beyond the Bible, and see where God has continued to come and at different points in history bring both judgment and deliverance. These comings in history all point to when Jesus will come again physically to bring the final judgment against Satan and all his enemies, bringing his final vindication to himself and his people. Now, when I say that, that he, he is going to bring vindication for himself and for his people, sometimes we become squeamish about this. Why does God need to be vindicated? He's making the point. Jesus is making the point that he is holy and he is our king. And just like the days of Noah, people ignore that fact. They ignore that truth. So yes, Jesus does forgive. He does reconcile his people to God the Father. But for those who choose to live in rebellion to God, for those who not just live in rebellion, because we tend to think, oh, rebellion, that's just, you know, there's two kinds of rebellion, right? If you've ever had a number of kids, you've seen this. You've got the rebellion of the kid who gets in your face and the rebellion of the silent one. And they're usually the silent ones right behind the loud one. Okay? But there's two types of rebellion. We need to recognize that to be in rebellion is to stand against the king. And yes, King Jesus, holy King Jesus, will bring a final vindication for himself and his people at the end of all time. The gospel readings are designed to remind us of the various ways in which he came and he still comes. He continues to come in judgment and mercy to deliver his people and defeat his enemies and judge all mankind and... <clears throat> And to close, and finally he will close, time in history. This passage sounds like the end of history, but it is not the last day of history, but the prophecy of the end of Israel's world. The leaders of Israel despised his mercy and mocked his faithfulness. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. For whatever man, a man sows, that he will also reap. Deuteronomy 7.9 tells us this, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. <coughs> Advent is the time where we remember that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to come with holy judgment and vindication of Jesus Christ and his people. <clears throat> we live in a period in American history where the holiness of God is minimized. God's grace is emphasized without realizing or even mentioning God's judgment. God's covenant has both blessings which we are prone to love, to tout, 
to cherish, to cling to, and curses, which we frequently see as belonging to others and not ourselves. When we walk in disobedience to God, when we rebel against Him, when we despise and mock His holiness and His call to repentance in Christ Jesus, God brings blindness upon us. Zephaniah 1.17 tells us, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Think about this for a moment. I'm going to spread it out longer than just a couple of years. Over the last 10 years, have you ever been astonished in your contact with someone how they couldn't see the truth? You see, God brings blindness upon those who rage against him, who strive, as it says in Psalm 2, to break the bonds of King Jesus. And yes, God says that their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. God is holy, and we need to recognize that King Jesus has both mercy and grace and judgment. Jesus, in the early part of his Olivet Discourse, is speaking in the temple, and he makes this statement where he's speaking about the woes of the Pharisees and the high priests and the leaders of Israel. He says in Matthew 23, 16, Woe to you blind guides. Now remember, if they're blind and they're the guides, it's because they've been in rebellion to God. And we know earlier that when he was in the temple in chapter 22, it says that they knew that Jesus was talking about them. But he says, Woe to you blind guys who said, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that, or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him, here's the scary part, by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Jesus in this Olivet Discourse is speaking publicly and he is calling, he said, woe to you. He's, call, he's been calling him to repentance for three years, and prior to that, we know that John the Baptist was doing the very same thing. We need to know that God is holy, and he's calling for repentance, and we should desire that he comes. Ezekiel 14.6 tells us, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. You see, throughout all the Old Testament, the prophets were calling for repentance from idolatry, 
from other things they'd set up to follow, to create ridiculous ways of swearing as in Jesus' day. And all through the Old Testament is a call for repentance, the discussion of the blind guides, the oppressing of the weak and vulnerable. And every time God came and brought judgment. We see later on in Ezekiel 18, verse 30, Therefore I will judge you. He, he made a call for repentance, and they wouldn't. He said, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. And again he says, Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. You know, we heard that there's a great promise from God to fulfill and bring peace to Israel. That it was in our reading from Isaiah today. Remember what happened there? It says Isaiah 2 verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, we all have heard those verses. We've all said, man, won't that be great when that's the case? We've all desired to take our tools of war and beat them into things of productivity, things that bring life and food and sustenance. But in God's coming, in the book of Isaiah, just Four, or excuse me, two verses later, we see this in verse 6. For you have rejected your people. God rejected his people. Because they are full of things from the, from the east. And the fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. And their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. And there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So God says, I'm coming, and I do bring peace, and I do bring blessing. But when I come, I also bring judgment. Why? Because we go and follow the religious lies that are around us that belong to the pagans. And we make deals with the God-haters. Money flows everywhere, and there's no end of the treasures. And, it's, and their land is filled with horses. And remember, horses and chariots, those are the signs of war. We believe that we are going to be protected by our own strength and measure from our enemies. Their land is filled with idols. And think on this now, they bow down to the work of their own hands to what their own fingers have made. Whether it's the idol, whether it's their belief in what's going to protect them, if it's their view of the world, they've constructed it all. And they worship it. Remember the call, and I say all this because I want us to understand that God does come, He does bring judgment, and out of the judgment, He keeps a remnant, which then becomes the blessing, the priest of the world, and begins his people again. 
And here I want us to think about the work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, we see that when many saw, that this is the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to, to uh, John the Baptist, out there in the wilderness, right before Christ's ministry begins, says, but when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John says this to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Here's the important part. He says, wrath is coming. To who? To these leaders of Israel, to the people at that time. And what does he say? He doesn't just say, what are you doing here? You're terrible people. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, we, we, the problem with them is they thought, okay, I've got a lineage. I belong to Abraham. Therefore, I, I'm good enough. God's going to take me. I don't need to follow what God's word says. I've got my own plan. And then you see the corruption when Jesus was speaking earlier where they have all these strange swearing activities they've created on their own. They don't want to follow God's word. They don't want to repent as God calls them to repentance. Instead, they create their own ways to worship and follow God. Jesus in Revelation also speaks of judgment even to the church. In Revelation 2, Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus says, this is in Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you first you did at first. That's the fruit of repentance. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. <coughs> that is to say, excuse me, that is to say God was going to take the lampstand that was in the throne room of God where they worshiped God like we do, we're, we're doing right now. We've come up into the place of God, into his presence, into his throne room. And our church is represented by a lampstand there. And unless we repent, unless the people at Ephesus come to repentance and their lives show the fruit of repentance, God himself will take, Jesus himself will take that lampstand out of the Father's presence. Jesus speaks that his faithful church must be full of repentance. And because of God's great mercy and forgiveness, be glad, be full of gratefulness, and thus do the works of gratefulness. We cannot worship in a way of our choosing. We cannot obey those things that are convenient and comfortable. God has a call to his people to repentance. The Christian life, the baptized life, is a life of continual, humble repentance, resting in the grace which is found only in Jesus Christ. We do not want to be found as the unrepentant hypocrites of Jesus' day who thought they knew better, a better way, than God himself has given to us in his word. This passage that we read in Matthew 24 today reminds us not to become so caught up in the busyness of life, marriage, feasting, and working, but to live a life of readiness 
for Jesus to come with judgment for his enemies and deliverance for his people. Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. This passage is part of the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives just prior to his death and resurrection and very near to follow his ascension. Jesus is not predicting the end of history, but of the old sacrificial system centered around the temple and Jerusalem. We need to know that this passage speaks to what has already happened and consider what Jesus says a few verses earlier in this very same discourse. In Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus, again speaking to the same hearer, says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall it be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So when you hear this, Again, we've been taught traditionally a lot of times that this is, you know, coming yet. It's not happened yet. But this passage, Jesus references the prophet Daniel's vision from Daniel chapter 7. And beginning in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, it says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, there's a couple of important things that we need to see in this passage. Number one, that Jesus coming in the clouds, and we're going to see that reference here in just a little bit in Daniel 24, but we need to see that what's happening from this passage is, it says, he's coming in the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. We've got our directions mixed up. He came where? To God the Father, to the Ancient of Days. He went from the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And why did he do that? When he came to the Ancient of Days... Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is our calling as the church to reign with him making disciples. Daniel 7.27 says this, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given... Listen now, this is Daniel, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Remember, in just a few, a few months ago, we went over Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 19, it says this, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according 
to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And here's, listen, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to who? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, when Christ ascended into heaven, he rode in the clouds into heaven, he sits down to the right hand of the Father, all authority in heaven and earth is given to him, he is king over all things, both then and now. And why did he do that? It was predicted in Daniel, and why do we see he did that? So that. He could give that authority to his people, the church. Not because we were worthy, not because we were deserving, but because he's called us to make disciples of the nations, to bring glory to his name by building his temple. I want us to look again at Matthew 24, but we're going to back up to verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in verse 6, these are all the things that you see happening there. So he says, Jesus says, okay, every one of these stones of the temple will be thrown down. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In verse 7, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Immediately after that tribulation of those, the days of the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of of the heavens will be shaken. I just want to point out a couple of things. All of these things occurred following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These, these, we know for a fact that not one stone was left upon another when the Roman army came in and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. If you look at, at the history of the Roman Empire during that time, there were wars and rumors of wars all over the place. There were nations rising up against nations. There were famines. You can find that right in Acts, that there was a famine. There were earthquakes. We don't have to to worry, he says. They're going to deliver you up. They're going to bring tribulation. They're even going to kill you, and you will be hated. You see, in the very beginning of the persecution of the church, it was just the leaders of Israel. It was just the religious zealots, and they weren't religious zealots for, for God, They were religious zealots for their own built system in rejection of God. But just prior to the destruction of the temple, Rome also turns. Rome's supposed to be the protector. If you look through Acts, you see that Rome is constantly protecting the church. But following the apostles, we see that Rome turns against the church and begins to persecute them. Where you see that 
that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars fall from heaven. This imagery is not about the actual stars in the heaven falling, but this is about the leaders of the empire. If we consider Genesis 1, when God sets up in verse 14, the lights, he says, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give you light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made stars also. And God set them in the firmament in the heavens to give light to the earth and to rule over the day and, to, and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. God set it up, yes, of course, to help us times and seasons and to create ruling. But we also see that this becomes the sign of imagery. Pharaoh, what was he considered to be? The god of what? The sun. And every great king, you see these images of suns and the moon and the stars. But it isn't just an idolatry. Think about this when we think of Joseph and the symbolism of stars. It says that Joseph in Genesis 37, that he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. That was signs of authority. That was... That was his, his father and his mother and his brothers who were all going to become leaders later, but they're, but they're leaders of their own households. And God is teaching us there that these are symbols for leadership. We also see in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay down the haughtiness of the terrible. Okay, that gaseous thing in the sky, that doesn't sin. The stars, they don't sin. This is speaking about leaders, political and religious. And it is important that we recognize that these, these are all of the leaders falling and being destroyed. And we see this beginning, actually. Why does Rome go through such turmoil? Well, Nero loses his mind. And then there's a, a changing, there's three Caesars in a row and great chaos and turmoil. And the church is being persecuted during this time. All this being said, these are the religious and political leaders falling. In Matthew 24, verse 30, again it says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will what? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, this is a reference to Jesus' ascension. We need to think about this. What does this mean? What is the purpose of the church? We all know that the call is to make disciples of the nations. Why? Because we were created to worship God. We're being reconciled to God so that we may worship Him rightly. We are no longer worshiping in a geographic place. In fact, we should see the hope in Christ 
which is a surety. It's a sure thing that God will keep his promise to use his people to disciple the nations. Remember the description given both in Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And also in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire, and the nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The waters covering the sea means that the church and his saints will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Is there any sea that isn't water? God is faithful and just, and he will fulfill his promise through his church to disciple the nations. Now, how do we know what this glory is, by the way? Because you could say, I don't, I don't understand how glory fits in this. Think back just a few weeks ago. In Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might what? Present him, her to himself a glorious church. What is the glory of God? It's his holiness, and it's, holy, and it's his holiness given to his church through the working of Jesus Christ. And why does he do this? What does this look like? It's, it, he does all this so that we don't have spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that we may be holy and without blemish. We, in fact, have become the temple of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us this, that we coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, the holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus predicted the tearing down of the temple, he was going to rebuild this temple much more glorious than any stones could be assembled. It is the glorious people in the church being built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the apostles and all of us from church history. We are the glorious temple made glorious by the work of Jesus Christ, his sinful life, excuse me, his sin, excuse me, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. God the Father keeps his promises to come and vindicate King Jesus and his people. What does Advent living look like? During this time of Advent and Christmas, you are likely to be busier than many other times of year. Am I right? What does Satan do when we think about we get to the time where we should be asking God to come? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Vindicate yourself as king. Bring judgment and mercy and restoration to your people. He creates a whole commercial marketing thing to keep us busy, busy, busy. We need to remember that Advent is the beginning of the church year. Let us set aside time to remember that by God's mercy and grace, we are able to walk in obedience to make him the center of our lives. 
Let us not forget our Savior's admonition to be faithful and wise. There at the very end of Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45, it says this, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give him food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him into, point, into two and appoint his, him his portion to the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the people of Israel, despite Jesus' coming, the leadership in particular, despite Jesus' coming, doing all these miracles, preaching repentance, refused to embrace the Holy Son of the Holy God, King Jesus. And instead, what did they do? Instead of helping the church to flourish, first by repenting themselves, but by doing what they can to help the church flourish, what did they do? They beat his fellow servants. And they weren't looking for the hour of judgment to come. I want us to think about this in close here. There's a commentator who wrote it this way. The Olivet Discourse is perennially, that means relevant all the time, to the church because Jesus reigns. He rules over the rise and falls of power, the increase and decrease of civilizations. He is the word who this creation came into existence. He is the word who tells the story of every world, the Alpha who speaks the beginning of the new world, and the Omega who pronounces the end. He does come again and again. He does judge over and over throughout history. But he does not judge in our timeline or according to our wishes. He judges rightly, always at the right time. We must resist the temptation to complacency, the temptation to think that the master is not coming back for a long time, the temptation to think that we can get away with mistreating our brothers. We do not want to be taken by surprise when the master comes. And we do not want to be sent to the place of the hypocrites. The way to avoid this is to be diligent in good works, serving and not abusing others, ever vigilant, waiting always for the righteous judgment of the righteous judge who judges all the earth. Let us pray. Our God and Father, <coughs> we give you praise for sending your Son we thank you, O oh Lord, that there is redemption through King Jesus, forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that every one of us during this Advent and Christmas tide season would love one another, recognize your holiness, repent of our sins, care for one another. And as you said in the closing words of the scriptures, 
We know that you are coming quickly. Even so, Lord, come and bring your grace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of Christ be with you. Now this peace is important because without the work of Jesus Christ, we are afraid to call for God's coming. But Jesus, in this 